1: Lauren Lee Chen and the twins, Aaron and Joshua Fishman. Greetings. This is Aaron Fishman, back with another fun and enlightening team-specific episode of On the NBA Beat. Today's guest is the talented and perceptive Caitlin Cooper, contributing writer for SB Nation's Pacers site, Indie Cornrows. There, she also co-hosts the twice-weekly Indie Cornrows podcast. As a first-time guest. Per our tradition, Caitlin shared a fun fact about herself. Early on in the pandemic, as a coping mechanism, believe it or not, she read Leo Tolstoy's War and Peace in a single week. Yes, all 1,225 pages of it. Caitlin loved it, and the act of reading a physical book helped limit what she called doom scrolling on her phone. The huge fan of classic literature, also digests Indiana Pacers basketball with passion, precision, and purpose. Although the Pacers are destined for a lottery finish this season, it's been a wild ride, and Caitlin has had an up-close seat to witness all the team's most notable happenings, including key injuries, core altering trades, player developments, and everything in between. Without further ado, Here's my in-depth discussion with Caitlin on the 2021-22 Pacers with an eye to the franchise's future. Caitlin, I'm excited to bring you in. We have a fascinating team to discuss today. They are 20 and 40 at the All-Star break, but that belies how fascinating they are in my opinion. How are you doing today?
0: I'm doing well. Yeah, this team has been kind of inscrutable for a lot of the season. Then we head into the trade deadline. It feels like I'm covering a completely new team, and it will even change more after the All-Star break if they can get some guys back and healthy. So a lot of questions to answer over these last 20 games or so.
1: Yeah, definitely. And I'm sure it keeps you on your toes as a reporter, too. So much going on. I think it would be wrong to start anywhere other than that monumental deadline deal The Pacers agreed to trade DeMontis Sabonis, Justin Holliday, Jeremy Lamb, and a second-round pick just two nights before the trade deadline to the Sacramento Kings for Tyrese Halliburton, Buddy Heald, and Tristan Thompson. Each of those three got to play four games with their new team so far. Tristan Thompson since was waived by Indiana and picked up by the Bulls. Uh, But you wrote a good feature on your expectations for how things would change for the team upon making that trade. If you don't mind sharing here for us, what were those expectations? And compare that with what has actually played out with regard to the team's playing style.
0: Right. So, I mean, when you go from Sabonis to Halliburton, like both of them have really good feel for the game and they process what's out on the floor very quickly. It's just that you're doing it at two very different positions. So mm-hmm. knowing that they were moving on from Domos, they are mainly going to be losing, you know, what he does as a handoff operator, his roll gravity, interior gravity. Um, his ability to generate side to side action, they don't really have any other bigs that can do that to the level that he does. But I think the thought process was, I mean, I don't think the Pacers have ever in my lifetime had a point guard, the caliber, even just after seeing these four games of what Halliburton can do in terms of, you know, no look passes, pass fakes to kind of shake, help defenders and get guys open and get everybody involved. So Um, I expected when the trade was made that you know early in the season, I don't know how many people know this, but Sabonis' role was a little bit weird for roughly the first, I don't know, 20, 25 games where he was mainly being used as a screener and there was a little bit of push and pull where I think he would rather be playing out of triangle concepts, the high post, using split cuts, um, being more of a facilitator in that way. And that didn't really happen until after Brogdon and Lavert kind of were both out with injuries and they came back from a three-game losing streak and they kind of turned more of the offense over to him. So I don't know if Rick Carlisle, just that's just not the way that he wants to play, that he wants to have a more guard-oriented offense or what exactly was going on there. But I expected that once Sabonis was in Sacramento, that they probably wouldn't do as much to the bigs. And as it turns out, they have ran some post-ups for Tristan Thompson and Goga, not to the level that they would have with Sabonis here of late, especially over the last month. But hasn't completely disappeared, but it is certainly more of the ball going back into Halliburton's hands like it was with Brogdon in the early going of the season. Mm-hmm. I think the biggest change that you can see with Halliburton so far is that you'll notice a lot of times that he'll want his teammates to be inbounding the ball very quickly so that he can immediately either push it up or use an advance pass. So I looked up yesterday that just their last four games, their transition frequency is at about 15.1% of their possessions, which is good for 14th in the league over that span. And for Rick Carlisle, that's very uncommon. I mean, he hasn't had a team that's been near to the top half of the league in transition frequency since the 2014-15 season. They're generally bottom five. I mean, the last couple of years in Dallas, they were 29th and 30th. So you're seeing them. It's not necessarily translated to a huge uptick in pace, but they are getting more in terms of numbers advantages with the way that he's pushing the pace that I think is going to be really fascinating to watch with how Rick Carlisle coaches in the half court and what his teams have been in the past.
1: Just a quick follow-up on pace. They ranked fourth in pace last season. And as of now at the break, the Pacers are 20th in the league. Um, do you attribute a lot of that to Rick Carlisle being head coach, or do you think it's many, many different factors?
0: I, mean, I think it's probably some confounding ones. Nate Bjorkren, um, last season, all of his teams in the G League played at a very high pace, so I expected that that would be the case, and the pace really dialed up over the back half of last season when one or the other big was out, but especially when Miles was out and they were only playing with Domas, it felt like they felt like they needed to play at that pace to outrun their own defense to an extent to be able to get extra possessions. And I wasn't opposed if they kind of tamed some of that back, especially with two bigs in the lineup. Mm -hmm. But like you said, I think that Rick Carlisle, like early in the going, I wrote an article where you could, they went on a three game road trip where they played the Knicks, the Pistons, and the Hornets. And in those first two games in the fourth quarter, um, both teams started blitzing Brogdon and really amping up the pressure to either three quarter or full court. They struggled to get into offense. And part of the problem was if they generated a stop, you would see that Brogdon was looking over to the bench for play calls a lot. And sometimes you could even hear the bench through the broadcast, like telling guys to hold it and get into offense. And I felt like he really needed to let go of the reins. And in part, he did. When they got back from that road trip, they went to more of a random offense against the Pelicans and started playing quicker. Um, that hasn't been the case across all games, but I do think some of it is is Carlisle wanting to. um, I mean, he says he doesn't want to have to call plays, and I don't think any coach really would want to. Like, if you have the guys who are talented enough to where you don't have to do that, I think that would be any coach's preference. But you can still see him a lot from the sidelines, showing hand signals. The guys are calling out, you know, seventy-seven or motioning for Spain, and then you'll see the point guard call that. So. That's what I think is going to be really, like I said before, really fascinating with Halliburton because it feels like, you know, from his past history at both Sacramento and Iowa State, where they kind of emphasize getting the ball in and getting it up the court, that, you know, he said that he wants to turn more of that over to Halliburton and let him make those choices and those decisions. So definitely going to be monitoring what the transition frequency and the pace is like over these last 20.
1: Anyone who's gotten to this early portion of the interview – it's obvious to them that you have a really strong technical knowledge of X's and O's and basketball, and you incorporate a lot of that into your articles. And I think that's what's made you so popular of a, of a writer and analyst. And um, I hope that more people continue to discover your work. But when this trade was consummated I know you watch a lot of league pass, but did you go back and watch a lot of um, Tyrese Halliburton and, and um, Buddy Healed stuff? Or uh, what was your process like on that? And also just a related, I know I'm throwing a lot of questions at you at once. On a related note, have you always seen the game of basketball like that? Or was that something that you developed over time?
0: Yeah, just that back end question. I mean, I grew up here in Indiana and I played myself and my dad was also a coach for about a decade. So I was always in gym somewhere and kind of absorbed the game through that way where I had a certain degree of vocabulary. And once I had that, um, I watched NBA games with him when I was growing up and saw the game through the lens that he was doing it through. And I just constantly make an effort. I mean, I call it kind of continuing studies where there's you know certain podcasts out there like Basketball Immersion and others where coaches will talk and I like to hear that and see where the game is going. Um, there's FIBA YouTube videos where they do clinics and I'll just watch those and hear what international coaches have to say about the game and just try to learn as much as I can in that respect. With regards to Buddy and Tyrese, um, as we know, the Pacers have done a lot of coaching searches the last two years. So um, just yeah. as it pertains to Buddy, Dave Yeager was on their shortlist or at least was reported to be by Adrian Wojnarowski. I think. So I had watched a lot of that back in order to write a profile about how Sacramento had dialed up the pace and how that might work with the Pacers. But when it came to Tyrese, like I must admit that when that trade came through, that was not something I was expecting was going to be on the table for Sabonis. I more thought that I mean, just based on things that I was hearing and what where reporting was going, that it sounded like Miles was gonna be the big that was going to be moved and that mm-hmm. they might still consider moving Sabonis, but my thought process was that wouldn't be something that would happen till the summer because you know what type of player he is, sometimes teams might need a little bit more time to kind of prepare their roster for how they wanna play with him and I thought the Pacers might be a little bit more patient with him because he is a two-time All-Star, only 25 years old, making $18 million. and it had sounded like the Pacers weren't super interested in De'Aaron Fox. So that wasn't really something on my radar. And of course, when you know they're going to make somebody like Tyrese Halliburton available... On only the second year of his rookie deal, you do that every time. But that day when it came through, yes, I, I, I tried. I, I've seen Sacramento play this year, but I watched as much as I possibly could that afternoon, and then did not get any sleep trying to write that article so I could have turnaround and and notice how he was running pick and roll and what some of the improvement areas for him might need to be.
1: That's really cool to have that insight into your process. And you mentioned that you were really surprised by the trade. So is Halliburton. And he wrote about that admitting as much in a piece he wrote for the Players' Tribune. It is just has has to be so exciting in Indiana that Tyrese Halliburton is now in town, just given his blinding potential, his youth. If you can help us understand just how scary high his potential is, but also just how skilled he already is, I'd love that.
0: Yeah, I mean, just in these four games, I think he's averaging 20 points and 11 assists and shooting 45% from three. So just from the Pacers standpoint, like if people do read that article, like if you look at Malcolm Brogdon, who came over from Milwaukee, like when Brogdon arrived, he made it clear that he thought his best position was point guard and that he wanted more opportunities to do that. And I think he can run offense, but I think positionally, he's probably ideally more of a combo guard who can play off the ball. Um, just because you'll see in certain games this year that um, the techniques like teams want to weak him. So if it's a middle pick and roll, they're going to push him to the left because he still kind of struggles a bit with his release to get the ball and go left as a shooter. And with Karis LeVert, a lot of times people would duck under pick and rolls, which would cause some congestion in the lane and could lead to some inefficiency, given what his shot profile is. Already with Tyrese, you'll see that you know it's an automatic read for him to stop and pop. He can do self-created threes against isolations, which just really wasn't necessarily an option for the Pacers at the degree and the level that he can do it. And then just running the pick and roll in general, like it's it's unfortunate, and I I touched on it that you know this is the type of point guard that could have really opened up some of the stuff Sabonis could do, but that's the cost of doing business. And now you look with Miles Turner or Isaiah Jackson, and I think he's just going to make their jobs easier. Um, miles has never really had this degree of space at the five and certainly there'll be more space than what Sabonis had at the five with this arrangement. But I think that the skill that has stood out the most to me, in addition to how quickly he's getting the ball up the court and making an effort there is just the way that he can freeze defenders. I mean, you don't notice it right away sometimes, even then when I've watched the games back and been like, oh. The reason Terry Taylor was just so open in the dunker spot is because he used a slight hand fake over to the corner, and that defender jumped, and then that was open. Or he'll look and transition to the opposite slot, and then throw it to Isaiah Jackson on the roll. And, and he has a really nice fake little lob pass that'll throw. That then it can even open up the lob even further. So um, I think that there's a lot of potential there. I think he's probably he would even even say himself that he cares about getting his teammates involved and could be a little less deferential than what he is. I think that um, part of what's so exciting about his potential is that I can see areas that he could be better in in each of these games that we've watched. And then I'll look and be like, oh, that was pretty close to a 2020 game. (laughs) So um, yeah, he's already been very impressive, especially with who has been out of the lineup and the way that they performed, even though they've only won one of those games.
1: How did it get to that point where Sabonis or Miles Turner, one of them, was very likely to be dealt by the trade deadline? Um, And why, in your estimation, did Turner end up being the one who stayed put? Do you think it was more a function of, of the high asking price by the Kings to get someone like Halliburton?
0: Yeah, I mean, I I know that the Pacers setter, Kevin Pritchard, who's their president of basketball operations, said they had one player circled that they really wanted, which we now know was Tyrese Halliburton. Um, With regards to the Kings, I mean, it had been reported out there for a while that they were most interested in Ben Simmons and Sabonis. My thought process is that the Pacers didn't really pick Miles or Sabonis. They picked Tyrese Halliburton because they think that the game is, is more dependent on point guards and that that was their means of getting one.
1: That makes sense.
0: I think if the Kings had wanted Miles Turner and were still willing to give up Tyrese, that Miles would have been the player who was traded. Um, Mm -hmm. his stress reaction might've also played a part in that because I know about, you know, two or three weeks prior to that, there were several newsbreakers who thought he was going to be the first big domino of the NBA trade deadline to go. And, you know, that injury might've scared off some teams, especially if they're contenders who, you know, might've wondered if he would be healthy down the backstretch or be able to contribute for seeding purposes right away. Um, I think overall the pairing itself, I mean Rick Carlisle has pointed this out. I mean that when when everyone was healthy, their best lineup was probably with both of them on the floor. But I think that there was always going to be somewhat of a limited ceiling to it and also Miles had come out and said that you know he didn't want to be a glorified role player, which he later on said that that was more so just a case of role clarity, but kind of came across as somewhat of an ultimatum like hey I want to have the opportunities to do more of the things that Sabonis is doing instead of just, you know, spacing out to the corner. My argument would be, I think that there were ways for him to find his own usage through the way that they were already playing. It's just that he struggles to do that a little bit. If he was going to get more shot attempts in that type of role, I think it would have happened by now. He needs to be more purposely involved. So I think now if he is the screener at the solo five, he'll get to do a little bit more of, of what he wanted to be doing. Um, when you have Sabonis on your team and the level that he can do that as, there wasn't really a compelling case to be tilting that toward miles, especially since if Sabonis is playing off ball, you know, his defenders is going to roam off and make that even harder. So the arrangement that they had is the one that made sense. It's just you know defensively and the way the NBA's played now, um, I think that they were always going to have somewhat of a limited ceiling. I mean, they never actually got to see it when you look back. Um, A lot of talk is made about, you know, Miles gets to play at solo five now, but he's done that. I mean, he does it every game in spurts and the last three playoff series that they played, whether it was against the Heat and the Bubble or the Celtics or the Cavs, like prior to Sabonis was coming off the bench. So he has had those opportunities. But point being is we never actually got to see the two of them in a playoff series together um, as starters. But I think that at a certain point in time, the team kind of realized that like, hey, we'll never fully know what the group with Brogdon and Victor slash Karis and TJ Warren and Turner and Sabonis could have been, but we can't keep waiting forever for when they'll finally be healthy at the same time.
1: Yeah, a lot of franchises get to that point where they just have to make a decision. If they haven't achieved their goals, a lot of times they'll decide to try something different. In preparing for this interview, I dug into the archives and I got a chance to read your piece on the Sabonis-Turner pairing. It's actually from Four plus years ago in November of 2017, they were both 21 years old at the time. I don't know if you remember writing this. You've written so many. I've written
0: so many Turner Sabonis articles.
1: (laughs) It was a good one. Um, You had a lot of freeze frames that you included from recent games. Just to better illustrate your arguments. Yeah, I'd encourage people to check that out. But I want to talk more about the guard situation now. Malcolm Brogdon, some people would argue... Is a similar type player to Halliburton, but there are a lot of major differences. Um, and I th- think you referred to Halliburton as a one
0: point seven five. I called Brogdon. Yeah, Brogdon? Brogdon, Brogdon. Yeah, sorry, Brogdon, Yeah.
1: So he's more more of a shooting guard, and you see Halliburton as making more sense on ball. And we don't know if Brogden, if and when he'll be back this season, but if you can address their differences, slight differences in positions and roles and what you think the acquisition of Halliburton could mean for Brogdon's future in town going forward.
0: I mean, I think it goes back to a little bit what I said prior about the blitzing and the weaking. If you can move Brogdon off in those types of situations, Halliburton just gets off the ball so quickly if there's two there that allows defenses to get put into rotation better. He can stop and pop against a drop or against the under in a way that Brogdon isn't going to be as quick at doing. And also like just from Halliburton's sake, if you look at him in Sacramento with De'Aaron Fox, there's going to be a difference between De'Aaron and Malcolm Brogdon. If Malcolm Brogdon's playing off-ball, there's not going to be potentially as much congestion at the nail as there would be with De'Aaron Fox as an off-ball shooter. Now, that being said, Brogdon's three-point percentage has dropped off quite a bit this season, but I suspect some of that might have to do with all of the nagging injuries in addition to the Achilles that he's been dealing with. And if he can get into... Not as heavy of a load. I think this offense will allow both of them to play some point guard at times just because there are so many, you know, passbacks between cards or sideline interactions and pistol stuff that would allow them to play off of each other. But um, the one thing that Brogdon does that's going to be pretty important for this team, I think, in the long run is that. If Brogdon isn't there, there's not a lot of guys who get to the rim very often, especially as ball handlers. Like if you just run down the list, Tyrese in these four games, his rim frequency in terms of his overall usage of percent of possessions is only ten percent. Duarte is 28 percent. Buddy Heal doesn't get to the rim a lot. Miles Turner, now he might now if he's playing more at the five, but he doesn't get to the rim a lot. He spends more time at the perimeter. And he knows Sabonis isn't there to be putting that same pressure on the rim either. But Brogdon ranks in the 80th percentile of rim frequency and and the types of pressure he can put there. So, you know, if he's in a, a second side action and can be you know, just doing straight line drives off of what Halliburton does. I think that that helps them. And also it just, it lessens his overall load because for the past two years, like I don't want to completely degrade what he did as a point guard. Cause especially in the first season, it was like a guaranteed bucket when he and Sabonis ran two man game. But the problem being is I think it was just too heavy. Um, under Nate Bjorken last year, he was playing a lot of minutes in addition to what his touches and time of possession were. I mean, even in that playoff series against the heat, if there was isolations, it was mostly just Brogdon having to go at Bam Adebayo a lot. And they're asking him a lot of times to guard the other team's best player. Like if they play the Milwaukee Bucks, He's going to be the player guarding Giannis in addition to having to, you know, drive into their no fly zone over and over again. So if you have Tyrese, you know, he can settle into doing more off ball stuff and still carry that weight against the better wing defender. So I think that there are ways that the two of them can help each other. I think more so for the Pacers, it becomes a question of. You know, do we see us having a higher ceiling with this mixture of young guys and some veterans? And do we want to continue to bank on Malcolm Brogdon being healthy? Because he's yet to play 60 games in a Pacer uniform in a season. But just on pure basketball fit, I think they can play together.
1: Yeah, he's really good when he's healthy. On that note, they couldn't trade him at the deadline because of the extension that he signed. But do you think that, seeing that pairing together how it works with regard to what they want to do in the future is one big incentive for getting Brogdon back healthy this season and seeing what they've got with that pairing
0: yeah I mean it's been interesting to watch lately because I think two games earlier this week he was actually upgraded to questionable and now he's back to being out I mean he's been dealing with the Achilles soreness for a while And he played a game against the Lakers and he didn't, I mean, he played well, but he didn't quite seem like he had the same degree of lift. And then they put him on a 10 day, like rehab regimen to try to, to heal that or get it back to where he could more comfortably play games in a row instead of being in and out. And then those 10 days elapsed and he still hasn't been back. So, I mean, You definitely want him to take his time because whether he's going to be on the team or not, you wouldn't want to risk him having an Achilles rupture because that's obviously going to damage his trade value. Plus, like you said, he's already signed to an extension. But, you know, if he takes the all-star break and they feel confident and he's ready to go, I I agree with what you said. I think there could be definite value to seeing, like, especially in a three-guard arrangement, can he and Brogdon, or can Brogdon, Tyrese, and Duarte play all three at the same time? And can that be viable with, you know, Brogdon taking the better wing defender and see how Duarte can look, defending the point of attack with Tyrese kind of doing more of the roaming. Is there enough handling to go around with all three of them and and how exactly that fares? Because I think that that would inform on some of their decisions going into this summer.
1: Yeah, it seems like the Pacers love the questionable tag for Brogdon. He's on my fantasy team, so I've been acutely aware of it. He's only played in 28 games, so a little bit less than half of the team's schedule There appears to be some optimism. I know it's hard to speculate, but does it seem like Brogdon is close to returning? Or really, you have no idea until he's back?
0: I mean, I don't have any idea. I think my boss at Indy Corner has even said that Rick Carlisle had been asked because... Brogdon had been upgraded to questionable from out for like two games. And he was like, you know, I don't really have any more information about that. I don't really know. So it didn't even seem like Rick Carlisle completely knew what the timeline is going to be. I do know that they put him back as out for the this recent game that they played against the Wizards before the break. So um, hopefully they're going to have more information about that when they come back. I mean, it's the same situation with TJ Warren. Um, it seems that every time that they get asked, it's been a constant that the scan that he had was favorable, but there's no timetable for return at a certain point in time. Both of those things can't be true anymore. You can't keep (laughs) having favorable scans and no timetable for return. It doesn't seem unless they're just prepared to (laughs) hold them for the rest of the season.
1: No need to elaborate, but if you had to guess, do you think we'll see TJ Warren this season?
0: I mean, it's so tough because he's in a contract year. So Um, I guess that's up to him to decide if he thinks that it's going to be worth it for him to go out and show what he's doing. I mean, he's been playing some one-on-one. There's been some videos coming out of practice where he's done some of that. Um, I don't know if he's progressed to doing anything more than that in terms of contact or playing with, you know, three on three, five on five to this point in time. Um, It depends on what the pace, I mean, that's why I said there's so many different possibilities that the Pacers could use going into the summer because, you know, maybe they'll think, you know, we want to keep this mixture of veterans and we could give him like a short term, one year, two year, prove it deal, maybe with a team option and see how he handles it. But, um. It's, it's unfortunate that they haven't gotten to see the guy that played in the bubble and, and exploded the way that he did, getting to play at the four and extending his range and taking more shots off the dribble from three, and that never came into being. I mean, they did look good together as a group for the brief, like three games that he played under Nate Bjorken. But I mean, that's a whole nother talking point because he played four games from Nate Bjorken and otherwise than that. He's got two coaching staffs behind. He's still from the Nate McMillan era. I mean, he's yet to do anything with Rick Carlisle. So there would have to even be an adjustment period there. So you kind of have to wonder what the diminishing returns there would be, even though I do think, you know, overall... If you could see Warren and Turner and Brogdon play with some of these guys and have a better sense of how good you think you might be able to be, I think that that would, you know, maybe shape what your thinking is at the at the draft.
1: Yeah, and I, I think a discussion of Buddy Healed also deserves some time here. He's a very streaky shooter. I think that's an understatement. Even he has two more seasons left on his deal at an average of nineteen point five million per year. I could argue that what we've seen in four games from him is possibly a microcosm of what we can expect him to provide in Indiana. Um, He had a 13-point performance in his second game as a pacer in which he hit just one of 13 three-point attempts but that immediately preceded a 36-point outburst that included eight trays and 14 of 20 shooting overall. Is that just what you expect from a guy like that? He's going to have huge nights. He's going to have terrible nights. And and um, you just take the good with the bad.
0: Yeah, I mean, especially for a team like the Pacers, because, I mean, it, it seems looking on paper that they should have been a little bit better shooting the three than what they have been. And in reality, prior to this trade, they were, you know, bottom five, bottom 10 of the league in three-point percentage. Um, There was even a game that they played in Phoenix recently where you could see Chris Paul look over at the Pacers bench and you could audibly hear it on the broadcast. He said, you know, they can't effing shoot. I saw that. Yeah, you could see most games where, you know, you have two or three defenders standing in the paint because they just didn't care about people who are outside the lane. So Even when Buddy isn't making shots, I think you can already see early on that, you know, if he's the back screener in Spain or if he's one of the screeners in a double drag versus having, you know, Turner and Sabonis as both the screeners, that the tagger cares a little bit more about him out at the three point line than what would have been the case with both bigs on the floor. And that opens stuff up for other guys. Um, He's made some okay passes in pick and roll situations as well. So. Um, 17 shot attempts per game and 10 three point attempts seems like a really high volume. And I don't expect that to hold if they can get healthy moving forward. But at the same time, like they like to run a lot of veer, they like to re- bring shooters back to the ball. And without Justin Holliday, Buddy's kind of, you know, even right now, Chris Duarte is also out with a toe injury. So he's kind of the only movement shooter they have. And there's a lot of actions that Rick likes to use that um, involves that. I think moving forward, some of his warts are going to be better hid in a bench role than what's been the case with the starters but it's like they just don't have any wings right now their roster you know Tristan Thompson has now since been waived but they got rid of Sabonis and they somehow like added more centers and a lot of guys who are young who are going to need minutes at the four and the five and they're basically having to you know use O'Shea set as a makeshift three Buddy Heald's having to play at the three So, you know, not a lot of wing defense there until they can get, you know, Brogdon and TJ Warren back to kind of shift some people into their more natural roles. But I think just having him as a credible shooter, you just kind of have to plug your nose and deal with what some of his defense and his shot selection can be at times.
1: I think Lance Stevenson's storybook, Return to the Pacers, is the thing that I was most excited to ask you about. It's hard to remember sometimes that he's just 31 years old But he did spend the previous two and a half seasons entirely out of the NBA. COVID-19 protocols were his gateway back into the league. He appeared in six games for the incredibly shorthanded Hawks in December. Um, And then after that 10-day contract ended, Indiana scooped him up and there have been 10-day contracts. And then a couple of weeks ago, he was signed for the remainder of the season it's just such an incredible story. In his first game back in Indiana and third game overall, he dropped 30 points on the Nets before recording 16 points, 14 assists. And I think he had four steals in that game too. The next game in Indiana, he's also averaging four assists per game. I'm listing a lot of stuff. I just want to demonstrate how solid he's been. An efficient shooter To How phenomenal has it been to experience this firsthand, this storybook return to the Pacers, a franchise he's just inextricably linked with?
0: Yeah, watching him come out in that Nets game and score... 22 and Kyrie Irving's first game back was like kind of an out-of-body experience. I don't know. I don't. I think it's really tough to explain, and I'm even from Indiana. I live it. I've watched Lance play since back in the 2013-14 era when they went to the Eastern Conference Finals, and it's even hard for me to fully describe what the connection is between Pacer fans and Lance Stevenson and just how every single time, even since he's come back, when he enters a game, you'll start hearing the crowd get excited, and it's because Lance is going in. Like, even more so than, you know, them watching Sabonis as a two-time All-Star, even sometimes what the reaction has been with Tyrese Halliburton getting introduced or putting, being put out there. So, um, yeah, it's, I mean, he said it before. It's like he gets superpowers when he plays with the Pacers. I mean, his shot's going to be inconsistent, but it was somewhat of a breath of fresh air because – You know, before they had him, they obviously had all the COVID absences that they were dealing with, but early in the season, Brad Wanamaker was the third string point guard. TJ McConnell goes and has surgery on his wrist, so he's been out for a long time, and Brad was really struggling to initiate offense, so they signed Kiefer Sykes, they bring Lance Stevenson over. In addition, the kind of a contrast that Lance had to what Karis LeVert was doing is Karis LeVert, for as herky-jerky and disorienting as he can be. He likes to go away from a lot of screens and all of a sudden Lance is just playing and he's using the screens for Sabonis and he's actually making pocket passes that didn't exist for a huge portion of the season. And then, you know, he has like the 15 assist game against the Utah jazz when Sabonis had 40 and the two of them had really good chemistry from the last time that he was here when Sabonis was still, you know, the backup center and Lance would come off the bench and, you know, to see some of that re rejuvenated was a fun little burst before Sabonis got traded as well. So, um, yeah, to answer your question, some of it's even sometimes hard for me to explain how exactly it happens, but it's it's been helpful for the Pacers even again, even though they haven't won games, just to have somebody else out there who can be a primary ball handler and run some pick and roll and get downhill has allowed some of these other guys just in you know developmental roles, whether it's Terry Taylor or you know whoever it might be, to still get some of those reps that I don't think necessarily would have been there if you were still using Brad Wanamaker as the third string point guard.
1: Yeah, I can see how it'd be tough to explain or contextualize. But, I mean, you did a good job at it. And it's something that I think has been an underrated development of this season where we've seen guys like that or Joe Johnson going back to the Celtics briefly or C.J. Miles. There's just a, a long list of players who are out of the league that came back because of the protocols and had that opportunity. And Lance Stevenson is certainly making the most of it. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with more show. Hoops fans, the latest offer from DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NBA, is too good to pass up. I'm talking between the legs 360 windmill good. New customers can bet just $1 on any team and get $150 in free bets if that team wins. It's that simple. If Sportsbook isn't available in your state yet, you can still take your shot at a big payday. Everyone can play for huge cash prizes with DraftKings Daily Fantasy Basketball Contests. DraftKings is giving all new customers a free shot at millions of dollars in total prizes with their first deposit. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use promo code TBPN, bet just $1 on any NBA team, and get $150 in free bets if they win. That's promo code TBPN at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NBA.
0: 21 and over. Minimum age and location requirements vary by jurisdiction. See DraftKings.com sportsbook for full list of requirements and state-specific responsible gaming resources. Void web all? Minimum $5 deposit. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. In Tennessee, call or text the TN Redline at 1-800-889-9789. In Connecticut, call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org slash chat. In New York, call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text
1: HOPE-NY-467-369. Hey, this is Dave Zirin, sports editor at The Nation magazine here on the NBA Beat. There are so many promising young players on this roster. And a lot of them seemingly came out of nowhere, at least from my perspective, where they were, you could argue, virtual unknowns like Terry Taylor, Isaiah Jackson, Dwayne Washington Jr. Others like Chris Duarte, he was a lottery pick. He's been solid. Um, Jalen Smith was a lottery pick that they acquired from Phoenix. And he's had an underwhelming start to his career. But then again, he's shown real flashes with increased playing time. So just throwing out all those names of you, and then even O'Shea Brissett was undrafted, Goga Batadze, he's had limited playing time in his early career. Who are you most excited about? And what are the, the biggest question marks regarding those players? And I know you could address all these guys in depth and detail, but Just whatever you think is the most interesting and noteworthy to discuss.
0: I mean, I think in general, when you look at that whole group, I mean, you run down the Pacers recent draft history. TJ Leaf is playing in China now. They, They moved Aaron Holiday to the Wizards, who has then since traded here in the last week to Phoenix, essentially for cash considerations. Goga has really struggled to get out on the court because of Turner and Sabonis being out there to now this year going to having, you know, Chris Duarte as a lottery pick who started a lot of games for them and looks like a gem to also having Isaiah Jackson, who unfortunately keeps having some nagging issues with his ankle, but every time he steps on the court, you just, his overall athleticism and his tools are just very tantalizing, even though he kind of seems like somewhat of a raw ball of clay to a certain extent still, but Um, Just everything that he's shown potential wise with his ability to catch lobs. Sometimes he has a pretty decent feel where passes need to go. And then defensively um, his ability to switch out. I mean, he's still pretty underdeveloped in terms of like wanting to jump and, and getting fouls. And sometimes he plays too close to the ball on switches, but just his overall ground coverage, but they get those guys. And then they also have Dwayne Washington jr. And Terry Taylor who are on two way contracts. And it looks like a very exciting rookie class that really hasn't been the case for the Pacers. And recent history and like even just the other night when they played the Wizards, like you're saying with Terry Taylor and O'Shea Brissett, that's who they closed with at the four and the five and Terry Taylor was playing the five and he's six foot five and he's just so strong and both of them are very resourceful in a way that I think meshes pretty well with Tyrese Halliburton because they find openings in the defense. They find cracks. O'Shea is a very instinctive, intuitive cutter where he does so without spoiling the spacing and also in a way that creates cut assists for other guys. They have their limitations. Um, O'Shea can struggle with finishing and on uh, the defensive end, he can kind of struggle to hold his own on the perimeter and gives up size on the interior. But just the collection of them as a whole, I think that the franchise has to be pretty excited with where their young guys are given that that really hasn't been a reality for them as late in terms of how they can mix a match. I mean, one of the problems that they will incur when they get back is, you know, Terry Taylor and O'Shea and even Jalen and Goga have been getting minutes of late because Isaiah Jackson and Miles Turner have been out when they get back. And if TJ Warren does get back, it's kind of like, you know, where, how are all these minutes at the four and the five spot going to be distributed amongst so many guys who have kind of shown potential. And that's kind of somewhat what the roster imbalance is, but also kind of a good problem to have.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's what I was going to say. Definitely a good problem to have when you have too much depth, and depth has been an issue um, because of all the injuries. Is that, from your understanding, the primary reason why the team has been so dreadful defensively? Or is there anything else that you think is important to understand with regard to the team's steep defensive decline this year?
0: Yeah, here lately, over the last four games, I think you can pinpoint a lot of it to somewhat of the transition defense and their uptick in turnover rate. Um, it seems like transition defense-wise, they're having more problems. If you look at cleaning the glass off of, you know, transition off of steals. So if they could cut back some of the turnovers, I think that would help. Um, Miles Turner being out, we know what he can do as a rim protector, though. Some of the defensive issues and what the numbers were in December long predated when he went out with the injury um even go back to last year I think part of what I would summarize it as is I don't think they really have an identity on that end of the floor and I don't think that's necessarily uncharacteristic for the where the league is as a whole I don't think that there's a lot of teams that necessarily have a base scheme they want to be able to throw a lot of different things at especially elite scores but for the Pacers if you go back two years under Nate McMillan. They knew who they were. They were going to guard their positions. They were going to fight over or, you know, play drop coverage and play things straight up. And they were going to force turnovers, but as a product of their system, not the purpose. And then when Nate Bjorken came, he remade what was, you know, a top six defense, kind of strangely into being this, you know, very overly aggressive system where they funneled everything to the rim. And I think that that created some issues for them in addition to just him wanting to be, you know, sensory overload with morphing between triangle and two and box and one and a lot of zone coverages that were very underbaked. But at the same time, when I look back at it, it's like, you know, that was kind of a mess, but I knew what they wanted to be. And this year, Mm -hmm. you know, between balancing miles and Sabonis, um, I think to the coaching staff's credit, they realized like, Hey, Sabonis isn't miles. We can't funnel all of this action to the rim when he's at solo five. So they started moving him at the level of the screen or jumping out above the level of the screen. And he showed some encouraging flashes doing that, but they didn't really necessarily always have the players out there. It's very hard to hedge and rotate and scramble with two bigs on the floor. And it felt like they were searching for better methods to accomplish that. And then a lot of times, like Miles would do some of that too, especially against a team like Brooklyn, where you have a Kyrie Irving, a James Harden. But I think with him, you more want to play either at the level or in a drop. Goga, you want to play in a drop. Isaiah Jackson, you're going to do a lot of switching. And they've been doing a lot of experimentation with switching across all positions lately. And it just feels like they've never settled on exactly what they need to be. And while I do think that their overall shot profile that they're allowing to other teams has improved, they're not giving up quite as much at the rim. And more of that's um, being shifted to like short mid-range, long mid-range areas that you'd want to see. Teams are shooting the three very well against them, even though they're not uh, allowing quite as many threes as comparatively to most teams. I don't think they give up that many above the break. So there's some degree of luckiness there, but at the same time, um, the fouling has been an issue. And I think. I think they ranked 27th in opponent free throw attempt rate. And I think some of that you can point to and just see as a product of, okay, you're trying to balance all these different realities and and the scrambling is leading to more defending with hands than with feet. And I think that they do need to settle on going into next season, exactly what type of defensive team they want to be, because I don't think that, you know, they've really ever solved that. And when they headed into the season, what Rick Carlisle said that he wanted to do for this team, his top two priorities were togetherness and defense and, and, You know, before they made these trades, I'm not sure that they really accomplished either one of those two outcomes.
1: It's been illuminating talking with you in such great detail, granular detail, even um, about this Pacers team. I just have one more question for you. Much like Lance Stevenson, it's head coach Rick Carlisle's third stint with the Pacers and it's the second time serving as head coach. So he's back to signed with the Pacers for four years, $29 million after coaching the Mavericks for 13 seasons, which of course included a championship. But in the 10 seasons since that title, Dallas never advanced past the first round, even though six of those were winning seasons. What's your read on what Rick Carlisle, now 62, brings to the table as head coach?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think with him, it's somewhat been a little bit segmented, kind of like the team as a whole for this season. I mean, I think by comparison to Nate McMillan and Nate Bjorken, I've seen Rick Carlisle and his staff make more adjustments to how they played on both ends of the floor than what would have been the case a year ago, especially under Nate Bjorken where some of it was more stubborn and they didn't try to move pieces around or adjust what they were doing defensively to kind of better suit the personnel. I think at the beginning part of the season, I was a little bit surprised because when I watched his teams play in Dallas, I never really perceived him to be a system coach. I felt like he more coached to the players that he had. And in the early going of the season, I think you could kind of see some push and pull between he and Karis, he and Sabonis, and even he and Miles Turner at times. And I'm not saying like combative or like relationship wise, but just in how they needed or wanted to play and him more wanting to use some of what you know he was doing in Dallas in terms of you know playing five out and playing more contained and some of what more of the pace control you were seeing which was kind of opposite of what those other guys needed to do and some of that surprised me a lot but I do give him credit over the last month or so he did seem like he wanted to make some adjustments and it is going to be interesting to watch because i mean when the team got off to the start that wasn't really meeting expectations I guess I would say or what even those should have been cuz I mean we also have to point out how many injuries and the covid absences that he's had to deal with have been pretty um unprecedented as was also the case last year but it's it's tough to completely uh granularize it but or make it more granular but I think now he has more of the players that he needs to have to make That Maverick system work with the Pacers just having more shooting in general. I think will make a difference. Not playing with two bigs. I never really had the impression from him last summer that it was really his preference to play with two bigs on the floor. I think it's somewhat of a grade of incomplete, and I look forward to seeing what he does now that he has like what we've said. You know Halliburton and Heald as more shooting. You're not going to have to necessarily play double big unless they do think that they want to promote Isaiah Jackson to the four spot and see how that goes. But just having more shooting in general and having a roster that better fits, I think the way he wants to play and we can see how they put it together. Cause the one thing that we do know is two years ago, they were running a lot of these same actions and playing a similar style And that. I think that the Mavericks scored about 118 points per 100 possessions. And that was like a historically great offense. So We do know that it can work. It's just a matter of having those players. And I think that that was the biggest surprise because we went from last season watching Nate Bjorker and defensively kind of coach the team that he wanted, this very Raptors-esque style instead of the team that he had. And it, it felt very much the same way offensively with him, but um, the results so far of these first four games on the offensive end of the floor have been very good at just correcting what some of the stuff that the defense has been and hopefully having, you know, more connectedness between the players than what we would have seen early on. And some of that might've just been carry over where, you know, you've run back the same general group long enough that there was somewhat of a stale quality that I think he had to deal with it as well. But I mean, this season as a whole, just to summarize, has been very hard for me to um, mm-hmm. generally analyze to, to pick apart what exactly has been going on for the team and know what direction they're headed in. And even right now they have a lot of possibilities and a lot of options with the draft capital that they've gained and having young players who are exciting and, you know, some veterans they can bring back, but I still don't entirely know How competitive they're hoping to be if they see this as a soft rebuild or what they'll do. And that's why, for a team with a losing record, you know, these games should still be, you know, informative and exciting to watch as the season wraps up.
1: Yeah. Halliburton also referred to it as a soft rebuild and he expressed optimism with where the franchise is going um, when he was on ESPN within a week of the trade. Personally, I'm really curious to see what the front office does moving forward. And how the core players, especially if they stay healthy and the coaching staff can execute that vision. The last playoff series win, as you well know, came eight years ago when Paul George, David West, and a 23-year-old named Lance Stevenson took the Pacers to the Eastern Conference Finals where they fell to the Miami Heat in six games. So it's been a while. And I, I I think the people deserve more more Caitlin Cooper features from deep into the postseason. Does that sound like a plan?
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I got to write, I got to write two last year about the Wizards and the Hornets, but I don't think we're counting play-in tournament. I don't think that the fans <laughs> in Indiana count play-in tournament games as the same as playoffs. So, yeah, that that would that would be nice if the Pacers could get back into being uh, a playoff team again, based on what's happened the last two seasons.
1: We'll be watching. It was a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks again, Caitlin.
0: Hey, thanks for having me on.
1: Thank you to our loyal listeners and those tuning in for the first time. Of course, a huge shout out to Caitlin Cooper, whose appearance made this conversation possible. Your host for the episode was me, Aaron Fishman. You can follow our show on Twitter at OnTheNBABeat and me personally at ByAaronFish. This episode was edited by myself with production assistance from Lauren Lee Chen. You can listen to more episodes and subscribe to the show by searching On the NBA Beat wherever you get your podcasts. Ratings and reviews are always appreciated because they really do help more people find the show. OTNB is a proud member of the Basketball Podcast Network. We'll see you next time when we'll be discussing another fascinating team.